On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Standing and turn to Matthew chapter 1. I've been sick the last couple of days, and so trusting the Lord is going to get me through this. So don't be offended if I don't shake your hand. (laughs) Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 18 through 21, if you'll follow along now as I begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. You will remember the context of of this passage. Joseph and Mary were betrothed, which in that day was more binding than an engagement would be today. In fact, it uh, it was a legal contract which was considered binding on both parties the moment it was made. In other words, the man and woman were considered to be legally married even though the marriage ceremony would not occur for an entire year. And though they were considered married during this betrothal period, there was little, if any, social contact between the bride and the groom and absolutely no physical contact. And this betrothal period was kind of a probationary period, if you will. It was done for the protection of the bride and and the groom. It was a time of, of testing their fidelity. I mean, if, if the girl was pregnant, it became evident during this period, and it was dealt with severely. Sexual unfaithfulness during uh, betrothal was considered adultery, and under the Mosaic law, it carried the death penalty by stoning. And it was during this betrothal period, as verse 18 says, that Mary was found to be with child, but not by Joseph. Verse 18 tells us it was before they came together. And, of course, Mary knew how she had conceived by the Holy Spirit. But poor Joseph, he didn't know that. He didn't know who the father was. He just knew who the father was not. And so a cloud of suspicion, shame, and scandal hung ominously over Mary. Joseph doesn't know what's happening. I mean, his world has basically just come to an end. I mean, he was a just and, and righteous man, no doubt deeply committed to Mary, waiting with anticipation for the day when the betrothal period is over and they can come together to consummate the marriage. But now he finds out that Mary's pregnant. 
There were two things that Joseph could do. One was to make her a public example, which meant he would charge her openly in a public court with adultery. She would be shamed, brought to trial, convicted in front of everybody, and ruined in terms of reputation. The second was a more quiet way. The two parties would get together before two or three witnesses and write out a private bill of divorcement, such as is indicated in Deuteronomy 24. In this way, there would be no judicial procedure, no public knowledge. Nobody would need to know. It was stated at that time that you didn't even need to write the the cause for the divorce in the statement so that she could go away without anybody ever really knowing what had happened. So it was done secretly. This wasn't God's way. But things had, had grown so spiritually lax at this time that this was allowable. And so Joseph had those two options. And being a just man, he intended to maintain his personal righteousness, yet he desired to show mercy and compassion, even though Mary appeared to be an adulteress. Joseph had resolved to divorce Mary the quieter way. But as he considered these things, an angel appeared to him, confirming that the baby that she was carrying was, in fact, from the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he should not be afraid to take her as his wife. And then in verse 21, The angel gives him further instruction. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And in Hebrew, it's Jeshua or Joshua or Jehoshua, which means Jehovah or Yahweh will save. And many Jewish people gave the name Jesus to their sons as a symbolic hope for the Lord's anticipated sending of salvation through a Messiah who would purify his people and save them from oppression. So it was a very common name in Jesus' day. But none of the other little boys of that day with that name were virgin born. And none of them would save their people. One commentator wrote, all other men who who had those names testified by their names to the Lord's salvation. But this one who would be born to Mary not only would testify of God's salvation, but he himself would be that salvation. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's the reason Christ came, isn't it? And that is why it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found only in the name of Jesus, the God-man. I mean, it is God alone who saves. Like Psalm 20 says, there are some people who trust in chariots and some people who trust in horses. In other words, some trust in their physical strength, some who trust in their knowledge, their intuition, their reputation, their prestige, their position, friends. I mean, whatever it is, education. But only Jesus can say. What makes Christmas so significant is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. And you know what? So many of us in the church have heard that so many times. It just kind of goes right by us. And and we miss the glory and the magnitude of that statement. He, He saves us from our sin. That's why he came. He saves us from the penalty of sin. 
by cleansing us of our sin and, and clothing us in the very righteousness of Christ. He saves us from the power of sin and makes us holy by his Holy Spirit. And one day he's going to save us from the very presence of sin when he takes us out of this world to be with him in heaven. And then he'll save us from all the consequences of sin when he gives us a new glorified body at the last day. See, loved ones, we're not, we're not saved from sickness, sorrow, and suffering. We are not saved from temptation, trials, and tribulation. We will surely experience these things as long as we are in this flesh and in this world. But we are saved from sin forever. We are cleansed from sin's guilt by Christ's blood. We are made fit for heaven by Christ's spirit. I mean, this is salvation. The Son of God came into the world uh, that, that is infinitely more than a historical fact and a, uh, a holiday that we celebrate each year. It's a message of hope sent by God to his subjects here on earth that his son came. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save us from bondage to sin and Satan. His humble birth, his obedient, sinless life, his substitutionary atoning death, and his powerful resurrection was that he might save his people, that he might save us, that he might save you and I from our sins. And 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 is a great summary statement of Christmas good news. And there Paul, writing to Timothy, said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, or of whom I am the chief. You'll notice the context of that verse in 1 Timothy 15. It's, it's Paul's personal testimony of how he had been changed. In verse 13 of 1 Timothy, he said, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In other words, I formerly blasphemed, persecuted, and insulted Christ. And so why did the Lord Jesus choose the chief persecutor of the church to become the chief missionary of the church? The answer to that question is given in verse 16. There in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He did it so that we would grasp the message of Christmas, that no one is beyond the reach of his saving mercy and grace. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The Lord Jesus saved Paul, the, the chief of sinners, to demonstrate what his mercy and power can do in a life, even in the life of a proud, arrogant, blaspheming murderer of Christians. And what God did on the first Christmas. And what he does in saving and forgiving people today, he did and does solely on the basis of his free and sovereign mercy and grace. So as one man said, that all his people will end the paragraphs of their lives with, with words like 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, we ought be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We're not saved from sin and changed into righteousness for the sake of pride, but for the sake of praise and worship and to the glory of God, so that in the coming ages we might, might demonstrate 
God's grace. And when God's work in us is done, and when we stand perfected before Christ in the last day, we will not rejoice in our worth, but rather we will sing with millions of angels, saying with a loud voice, Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is what Christmas is about. He came, and he did not come to be served. He came to give his life a ransom for many. I mean, Christ didn't come to earth for other reasons and then get caught up in a plot that resulted in his death. No, he came to die. Hebrews 2.14 puts it plainly. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus came to die. He came into this world born of a virgin in order that he might save us from our sin. But sin is a very unpopular topic, isn't it? In our culture, it isn't uh, something a lot of people like to talk about. It's something in our society that's pretty much avoided or excused away or rationalized out of existence. And tragically, even in some churches, there's a subtle effort to avoid the subject of sin, if possible. And why is that? A number of reasons, but sin is offensive. And today, people don't want to hear about sin because they don't want to acknowledge their sin. They want to avoid guilt and responsibility any way they possibly can, and so they place the blame outside of themselves. But the fact of the matter is, at the very heart and soul of the gospel is the issue of sin. And any understanding of the gospel and presentation of the gospel, any comprehension of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is based upon a proper understanding of sin. Because until we understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the sinfulness of man, the the gospel cannot have its full meaning and be fully appreciated. And so we would be correct in saying one of the most important elements in the gospel is the problem of sin. And it is a problem. It's a huge problem. I mean, sin has devastated every relationship. It has devastated the relationship of man and God, of man and men, and man and nature. Sin has caused cosmic chaos in the heavens between angels and demons. When we come into this world, sinners by nature, and very quickly, we become sinners by choice. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Sin rules every human heart and will condemn for eternity all those who die in their sin apart from Christ. As one man said, sin has turned beauty into ugly deformity, and the sinner is more concerned to cover his sin than to have it cured. He is more eager to excuse it than to admit it and seek a solution. And men are not only sinners, but the Word of God tells us men love their sin. They love the darkness rather than the light 
John tells us, because their works, their deeds are evil. And the evil of sin, the sinfulness of sin is seen in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, God himself, had to die for it. Sin cost the very life of God the Son. Think of that. I mean, sin is so serious, nothing but the very life of God the Son could conquer it and pay its penalty. Well, what is sin? Well, sin can be titled a number of things. Iniquity, transgression, unrighteousness. The Bible calls it all these things. Essentially, sin is any transgression or violation of God's law. We see this in 1 John 3, 4, where John wrote, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, any lack of conformity to the perfect moral standard of God, any violation of God's law, his word, and his expressed will is sin. The standard of sin is not cultural. It's not a matter of cultural values or morals. It's not a matter of some social ethical system that has been established by men. The standard by which sin is defined is is the very word of God, and any violation of that standard is sin. So this means any act, any word, any thought or motive. And that covers all the bases, doesn't it? Any act, word, thought, or motive that in any way violates God's holy, just, perfect law is sin. Because God is the authority who's established the law. God has set the standard for man to live by, and any violation of his standard is sin. But you see, it goes even deeper than that. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 tells us that the natural man is at enmity with God, meaning that he has a a positive hatred toward God and stands in opposition to him. Sin seeks to dethrone and and depose God, assume his authority, and, and put self in his place. I mean, it's living as if there was no God, no law, and no consequences. And I believe that you could say that at, at the very core of it, at, at its very core, all sin is an act of pride. Because pride says, I'm in charge. Pride says, I'll do what I want, when I want, the way I want. I am the captain of my destiny and the master of my fate. You know, all sin at its very core is blasphemy because it attacks God. And when we come into this world, we love sin. So we love our rebellion, and we love our pride, and we love our blasphemy, we delight in it, and we seek every opportunity we can to manifest it. You know, Jesus taught that the central demand of God's law is this in Mark 12, 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, with your entire being. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the essence of all sin is the failure to love God with our entire being. And that's the primary violation. And and the essence of sin is most clearly seen in unbelief. And we see this in John 16, where Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit who would convict the world of sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. 
In other words, any failure to love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a failure to love God, which is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16.22, if anyone has no love for the Lord. So if you don't love the Lord, Paul says, he says, let him be accursed. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So the ultimate sin, the, the epitome of sin, and the summation of sin, is any lack of love for God and his son, Jesus Christ. Well, how many people are affected by sin? Absolutely everyone. No one escapes, right? Paul, Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John writes in 1 John, basically, whoever says he is not a sinner is a liar, makes God a liar. Shortly after creation, Adam sinned. With Adam as the head, the the whole human race fell under God's condemnation so that sin now rules every unregenerate heart. And sin infects, defiles, and corrupts every single person in the human race. As one man said, sin is to the soul what rust is to gold what a scar is to a lovely face. Sin is to the soul what a stain is to a piece of silk, what smog is to a bright blue sky. You see, it makes the soul red with guilt and black with sin. And sin affects every single human being. As we learned in Ephesians, sin enslaves us. It brings us under Satan's control, under God's wrath, and it subjects us to all the miseries of life. Sin causes the flesh to never be satisfied. And and finally, sin brings the soul to eternal punishment. And so summing all of this up, we we could safely say that sin has pronounced a curse on every human being, and that curse has temporal implications and eternal implications. In time and in life, sin brings to all of mankind nothing but pain and suffering and sorrow and trouble, and it brings eternal judgment and punishment. Well, what does God think about man's sin? Well, sin is abominable to God. He hates it, according to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Sin is contrary to his nature. It stains the soul and and degrades humanity. Scripture calls sin filth in Proverbs 30.12 and likens it to a, a putrefying corpse. Sinners, you know, uh, Jesus said, are the, are the tombs that contain stench and foulness. And the ultimate penalty, death, is the consequence of sin. So the human race is in really bad shape. See, God wants us to understand how bad sin is. And he wants us to understand how terrifying its consequences are. And we dare not take sin lightly or, or carelessly or, or flippantly dismiss our own sin. In fact, quite the contrary. We should hate sin. Well, what do unsaved men think about their sin? Well, I mentioned it earlier, they love sin. They delight in it. They seek opportunities to act it out. They, they know instinctively that they're guilty before a holy God, yet they inevitably attempt to camouflage or deny their sinfulness. And they tried to justify their sin. I mean, Adam blamed Eve, didn't he? 
he described her as the woman whom you gave to be with me. You know, blaming Eve. You know, she did it. And in blaming Eve, Adam was in reality blaming God too because God, he reasoned, was responsible for the woman who victimized him. And men also try to excuse their sin by saying it's someone else's fault. Or they argue that they have a valid reason for their sin. And they convince themselves that, that it's okay to return evil for evil. They call sin a sickness, a mental condition, or hormone imbalance. They, they can excuse themselves as victims. They can even deny what they've done is really wrong. I mean, their sinful hearts are endlessly creative in finding ways to justify its own evil. And because sin is so pervasive, Men naturally tend to be insensitive to their own sin, just as a skunk is impervious to its own odor. Well, so what are people to do about their sin? Well, first of all, there's no human cure for sin. No human cure. Sin is an incurable malignancy of the soul, and and all humanity is infected with it from top to bottom, inside and out. Sinners cannot improve their own condition. As Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 13.23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then also you uh, can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Tears and sorrow can't atone for sin. Good works can't make amends for wrong against God. Religious works such as prayers and personal devotion can't soften guilt or cover it in any way. The unsaved can't plan on purgatory because there is no such thing. There is no purgatory. There's no such place. doesn't exist. But even if it did, the fires of purgatory over a million lifetimes could never atone for one single sin. So if people are looking for a do-it-yourself solution to the problem of sin, they only make themselves all the more guilty by rejecting the only remedy for sin that God in his mercy and grace has provided. So there is a solution to man's problem. There is a way God can, be, can satisfy his perfect righteousness and still display his, display his rich mercy towards sinners. The solution to human sin The solution to the human sin problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the cross of Christ provided the way to God by enabling the only acceptable sacrifice to atone for human sin once and for all. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, He was the Lamb of God offered as a perfect sacrifice for sin. It was was the very purpose for which he came. John, writing in 1 John 3, 5, said, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus Christ offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Hebrews 9.14 tells us. 
He paid the penalty to the fullest on our behalf. And all the sins of everyone who believes are imputed to Christ, and he, and he died for them. And Christ then rose from the dead to declare his victory over sin and death. As Paul said in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But not only that, God considers all believers righteous in Christ because he credits Christ's righteousness to the believer. And that's the truth taught in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul wrote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God redeems those who believe and, and makes them new creatures. And if, you, if you're a believer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because God gave you an entirely new nature, including a love for righteousness and a hatred for sin, a love for God and, and the things of God and the word of God and the people of God. Someone is not saved. What can they themselves possibly do to change their hopeless condition? Well, what can they do themselves? Nothing. There's nothing they themselves can do. They are utterly dependent upon God's mercy. But if the cry of their heart is something like the, uh, the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? They can take heart because the Spirit of God is already working in them. And here is Jesus' clear and concise command to the troubled, convicted sinner. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the word repent gets a lot of bad press. But to repent is to turn away from, from your sin. It means confessing and forsaking your sin and, and hating your sin. And if repentance stresses turning away from sin and self, believing then emphasizes what we're to turn toward. We are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. And loved ones, a person can't lay hold of Christ while still clinging to their sin. You know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Well, you can't cling to the cross if you come with things in your hands. A person cannot lay hold of Christ while they're still clinging to their sin. Unless they turn from the, the, the passing pleasures of sin, they will never ever see God. God's salvation from his holy wrath involves a glorious liberation from the control of sin. And that's good news. That is good news. Men can be set free from sin's penalty and power if they will trust Christ and take his gospel offer seriously. Ever wondered why God would become a man? Be born in such a lowly manner and let men treat him the way they did? I mean, why would Jesus, who Colossians 1 says, is before all things and in him all things hold together, agree to come to earth as a baby and then as a man, a servant, suffer the abuse that he suffered and die such a painful, agonizing death? Ever wondered why he would do that? Well, Matthew one twenty one tells us, he came to save his people from their sins. He did it to make peace between God and man. God is justifiably angry at humanity's sin. I mean, and all of us have sinned. 
and done so repeatedly. Yet God loves sinners enough that he gave his only son to to live on earth, die on a cross, bear sin in his own body, suffering the full weight of God's wrath, wrath deserved by sinners. Christ paid the penalty to restore peace between God and sinners. It couldn't have been done any other way. Jesus came to save. He will save his people from their sins. And that is a, a glorious truth. That's a glorious reality. And as the Apostle Paul, writing in Ephesians 1, Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I mean, this is the message of Christmas. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born as a child into this world to provide forgiveness for sins. And, though his, and through his death on the cross, he took the sins of all of us on himself and died the death we deserved as a sacrifice for our sins. He took our sins away, and they will never return again. And I wonder, I wonder how much we truly grasp what a great and glorious truth this is. I mean, the Bible speaks of this in Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, <clears throat> excuse me, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, how far is the east from the west? It's a Jewish expression for infinity. Isaiah 44, 22 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. In other words, God says, I can no longer see your sins. Then you can see a mountain in, in a dense fog. that they're, they're blotted out, all of them. The prophet Micah in chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? And then in verse 19, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. I mean, are we, are we hearing this great truth? Are we hearing this great truth? Christ Jesus came into this world to save us from our sins. As Paul said in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, at just the right time in history, at the precise moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul said in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. And that's the issue. He died for us. He died in our place. And when he did, God just unloaded the full blast of the eternal curse on Jesus on the cross. And the full fury of God's wrath fell on him as he took our place and paid the price for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And loved ones, that's why he came. Christmas is about the birth of a child who was born to take away sin, to pay the price for our sin, so we don't have to pay that price. And that is why Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment for those of us who are in Christ. Why? Because our judgment fell on Jesus. 
Jesus will say who will save his people from their sins, and he has done that. He has paid the price. He died the death that we should have had to die, and he carried our sins so far away that even God will never again consider their existence. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In other words, just because of who he is, just for his own purpose, just for his own glory, he forgave all our sins. I mean, what a, what a blessed reality that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sin, to forgive sin. And of course, certainly doesn't mean we cease to sin, because we do. We continue to sin. It doesn't mean that sin won't have harmful effects in this life. It does. But loved ones, what it does mean is that we will never ever pay the ultimate penalty for our sin because that has been paid in full. We will never die eternally. We will never spend a moment in hell. We will go from this life immediately into the glorious presence of Christ in heaven because our sin is no longer an issue with God. And so no matter what you might be deprived of, no matter how lonely your life might be, no matter how sad it might be, no matter how painful your situation, no, no matter how strong your fears and how terrifying the prospects of the future might be to you, no matter what goes wrong in this life, no matter what, what is not the way you would like it to be, no matter how much unfulfillment you face, no matter how bleak the Christmas season uh, know this, loved ones, know this. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have complete and perfect forgiveness for all of your sins. And you will never pay for your sins. Because Christ has done that. Christ has done that. And in that there is joy unspeakable, there is hope and, and peace that passes all understanding. And all of us who know Christ, and all of us who are saved, all of us who are true believers should say with hearts filled with gratitude and thanksgiving what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I mean, thank you for the Lord Jesus who came to save his people from their sin. So let's make it a point to not only remember, but also to meditate upon the fact that Christmas is about Jesus Christ coming into the world to save us from our sin. The important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. That's what Christmas is about. He came into the world to save sinners. Let's also meditate upon the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And as we do, the truth that Christ came to save us from our sin and from eternal wrath becomes more and more incredible and wonderful and grace becomes greater and greater and mercy becomes sweeter and sweeter and the gospel becomes more and more powerful and Christ becomes more precious and more glorious.
The angel said to Joseph, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Savior of the world was born in Bethlehem that first Christmas day. And as John wrote in 1 John 4.14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, said, this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the glory of Christmas. And the wonder and, and beauty of Christmas is not a tree or decorations or lights or presents or family and food. As wonderful as all of those things are, and they are wonderful, but that's not the glory of Christmas. The glory and the wonder of Christmas is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ who humbled himself and came into the world to save sinners. That's the meaning. That's what Christmas is all about. And that should be a profound source of worship and thanksgiving, not just at Christmas or Easter, but for us as believers, that should be a profound source of worship and thanksgiving every single day of the year. We have so much to be thankful for. I mean, we were were dead in our trespasses and sin, right? Right? But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us, didn't he? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And if you've never trusted Christ alone for salvation, then we would would call upon you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone this very day. No, we would would call upon you to turn from sin to Jesus Christ and and believe the gospel. Just cast yourself upon him. Call upon him. And we know that everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Let's stand. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, We hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see.